from CPRI and the CPRI Knowledge Hub, this is Research Minutes, a weekly look at new and important research and education. Today, we look at the educational legacy of redlining and how the racist lending policies of the 1930s may be impacting schools and students today. They went around from 1935 to 1940, around hundreds of these urban areas, and they assigned A through D ratings to these neighborhoods. Apart from historical pricing or comparable properties, the big factor that went into this is racial identity, ethnic identity, and class. We welcome Harvard University researchers Dylan Lukes and Christopher Cleveland, co-authors of a new working paper examining the relationship between historic neighborhood grades and current school funding, diversity, and student performance. They share what they learned from their work. For those schools that were located in these historically redlined, de-assigned neighborhoods, we are finding that at least on average, they have less educational opportunity than those located in A, B, and C neighborhoods. And some potential implications for education policy, practice, and future research. So that's a kind of a question of how to pool local dollars across different types of neighborhoods, which is certainly not an easy policy question and is tied into like many different perspectives about the role of local funding but I think it is something that can be reflected on. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hello and welcome to Research Minutes. I'm Keith Umeller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub. Today, we're happy to be speaking with Dylan Lukes, a PhD candidate in education policy and program evaluation at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we're also speaking with Christopher Cleveland, a PhD candidate in education policy and program evaluation alongside Dylan at Harvard University. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. So, Today, we're discussing your new working paper, which is now available through the Annenberg Institute at Brown University at edworkingpapers.com, titled The Lingering Legacy of Redlining on School Funding, Diversity, and Performance. Uh, It's a study that essentially spans 90 years of American housing and education policy and investigating how exclusionary lending practices in the 1930s have influenced the schools and districts that students attend today. To start, Chris, I'm curious what led you to this work. Uh, What questions did you start out with and why did you think this was an important area of study? Yeah, so beyond this particular project, I do do work with school districts around like financial planning and through that work have been very interested in how districts leaders talk about how their state funding formula or their district funding formula or their sort of like neighborhood communities affect how they perceive the dollars they receive or the decisions that are made about spending and hadn't yet found a way to sort of move that intellectual curiosity forward in like the academic side of things. And I actually had a chance to work with Dylan through our co-teaching of the education finance course at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And we had set out to work together at some point on an issue related to education finance issues in in the U.S. 
And I just so happened to come across a paper that used the Hulk map data, these FHA maps to look at urban heat issues and like showing how the historically redlined neighborhoods actually have higher temperatures than the better rated A neighborhoods. And I was fascinated by that connection between the, the housing practices and heat and also surprised that there hadn't yet been an exploration nationally about how these maps might be connected to modern educational outcomes. And so it seemed like a great time for Dylan and I to work together and see what might be the sort of modern context for educational outcomes related to this quite old uh, Hulk maps. You just mentioned Hulk maps, and this study does involve a, a couple of different acronyms, which are important to understand. And as we mentioned, the study involves analyzing data that's nearly a century old, which I find really intriguing. So Dylan, could you maybe give us an overview of this work and how you attempted to answer those questions you started out with? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm first just going to start with Hulk. And so what that stands for is Home Owners Loan Corporation. And so that was established actually all the way back in 1933 by the Home Owners Loan Corporation Act under FDR. It was a government-sponsored corporation that was tasked to provide mortgage relief to homeowners who are at risk of losing their homes through foreclosure. And so the key thing here to remember, right, is that during this time, you have the Great Depression. So in the 1930s, right, in, in the lead up to this, actually, you had a housing crisis in the early 1920s to mid-1920s. You have Black Tuesday with the stock market crash in 1929. And so the context here that we're walking into with the development and the creation of of Hulk is a housing market that has just been decimated. And so the big question facing US and US policymakers is how can we improve housing standards and conditions? And how can we basically shore up this housing market, which has really, really suffered over the last few years? And so Hulk is created. And part of the creation of Hulk and what they did is, is from 1935 to 1940, is they basically went around all these large urban areas. I think there's actually over 240 cities. So in our paper, we look at around 140 or so core-based statistical areas, which is a combination of, of cities. But they went around from 1935 to 1940, around hundreds of these urban areas, and they assigned A through D ratings to these neighborhoods. And so A was safe and D was hazardous. And so it's really interesting when you look at, for example, the FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration, uh, it's 1935 underwriting manual in terms of how they assign these grades. And some big factors that went into this, apart from, for example, historical pricing or comparable properties, the big factor that went into this is racial identity, ethnic identity, and class. And so we, you often see these neighborhoods with Black Americans, immigrants, low-income whites receiving D grades. And once again, these D grades disproportionately impacted racial and ethnic minorities. And the reason these grades are so important is because they were used by Hulk and by FHA, by the U.S. government to determine creditworthiness and access to financing. And so if I have a D grade, I'm probably not going to get an FHA loan. And so I'm not going to be able to get FHA insurance. And it's going to be really difficult or more difficult for me to get financing for a home. And so owning a home becomes almost impossible. And so that's all the context of Hulk and FHA and the National Housing Act, all these different things that are coming into play here. 
And in your work, you've come away with a number of different findings so far. Um, so first, could you tell us what you've learned about the relationship between district financing and historic Hulk gratings? So one of the first outcomes we looked at is district financing. And we look at four primary outcomes, one being total per pupil revenue, and then we disaggregate total per pupil revenue to per pupil local and per pupil state and federal. So overall, at the total per pupil revenue level, both nationwide and by region, we find that on average, uh, total per pupil revenues are lower for districts in D-assigned Polk neighborhoods than for A, B, and C grades. And the key thing here to remember too is these schools themselves were not assigned these grades, right? These are modern day schools. And we've mapped Holt grades from 1935 to 1940 to these modern day schools and then linking them to their outcomes. So for total per pupil revenue, we see D compared to their ABC counterparts. We see on average, they have less funding. And then disaggregating that, we see that difference is largely driven by local differences that favor A and B schools or districts in this case, relative to C and D districts. So we see these local differences, and then we look at state and federal policies. We see that C and D districts per pupil averages outpace A and B district averages for both state and federal funding. And so we do see redistribution happening here, but it's not enough to close the large and what we find to be the statistically significant gap in average local per pupil revenues that favor these A and B districts relative to C and D. So those are some of the key findings in terms of snapshot findings that we find today. We also look at what happens over time. And so starting in the late 1980s and all the way up through 2010s, we look at trends and we also look at gaps. And across all four of these outcomes, we see a positive upward sloping lines regardless of whole grade. But the key thing here is, is gaps. And so overall, we see the gap trend lines that are downward sloping between D versus A and B counterparts. What that means is that's a widening gap. So we see a little bit of a widening in the gap in overall pure pupil revenue across time. And that widening of the gap would favor the A and B districts over the D districts. If we look at federal and state, we also see, like I said before, the general trends are upward sloping. But if we look at gaps between D, i.e. those redlined neighborhoods versus the A and B, we see an upward sloping trend line. And so what that means is that there's a widening gap that favors Ds. In this case, these are our D districts. And then local, it's the exact opposite. It's downward sloping. We see a widening gap that favors A and Bs over D districts. So to, to summarize all this and put it more succinctly, what we find is that looking at these three decades, we see that on average, those districts most in need of additional resources due to inequality in local funding are those districts that receive the most state and federal funding. The key thing here, though, is that these districts are on the whole in neighborhoods today that were historically redlined in the 1930s and 40s. So what this tells us, this tells us that there's evidence for a longstanding association between historical neighborhood inequality brought about by the assignment of these A through D grades and present day district level finance inequality. And you also investigated impacts or relationships with school-level diversity. Uh, could you walk us through what you learned there? Yeah. So as Dylan was sharing, our finance outcomes are at the district level because of the availability of data. In contrast, our 
diversity outcomes are, are measured at the school level, which allows us to have a larger sample for this measure uh, and also look at a few different types of diversity metrics that are available through the data collected through the National Center for Educational Statistics. We look at the percent black, the percent white, the percent non-white, and also this measure of the Simpsons Diversity Index, which is a measure that looks at the likelihood that two students of different races might interact with each other within a school. And looking at these different measures allows us to put together a, an interesting and a comprehensive narrative about how the relationship between historically like redline neighborhoods sort of shapes the experiences of students within schools in those neighborhoods. So what we find in our study across these measures is that over time, we see a decline across all of the whole grades in terms of the percent black and the percent white in, in terms of the students who are attending these schools. And conversely, we see an increase over time uh, in terms of the percent non-white students, which echoes like larger trends within this country about how diversity is changing, both in terms of the citizens who live in the U.S. and also those who attend U.S. schools. And what is also an interesting component of this study is this measure of the diversity index, which I think differs than what Dylan and I might have hypothesized being the outcome for this measure. Our hypothesis coming into this work was that the D grades have been assigned to have like a D grade because they reflected a demographic population that might be like black or Hispanic or immigrant and like relatively homogenous in that lens. And similarly, there's evidence that the A grades would be rated an A if they had a higher percentage of white families at the time when the grades were made. And so when we're connecting that neighborhood characteristic to schools, we would largely anticipate that in places where schools reflect their neighborhoods, we would probably see the degraded neighborhoods have a larger percentage of black students in the A-rated neighborhoods to have a larger percentage of white students. And so to see a change in that relationship when it comes to the diversity measure suggests that there's another mechanism at play for student assignment or actually how families are sorting into modern A neighborhoods. And as something that we're continuing to reflect on and investigate in our ongoing work, we're trying to tease out if this issue of diversity could be a component of issues of gentrification taking place in neighborhoods as reflected in other work that's used the Hulk grades. Or it could also reflect the presence of schools of choice in these systems, whether that be charter schools like, or magnet schools or other types of schools that would disassociate the connection between the neighborhood and the school when it comes to student assignment patterns. Overall, we see you know, increasing diversity in U.S. schools over this time, concentration of white students in A-grade neighborhoods 
but then this other sort of nuance finding about how even though those A-grade schools tend to have a larger share of white students, there's an increasing introduction of diversity in those schools that we'd like to investigate further to better understand. And you also investigated the link between Hulk grading and school-level student performance. Um, I'm curious what you learned there. So we looked at three primary outcomes for student performance or school-level student performance all of which were taken from the Stanford Education Data Archive, which is an absolutely fantastic, freely available, publicly available data set that researchers can use. And we specifically looked at average math and ELA test scores. And we also look at test score trends, which is going to be changes in average math and ELA test scores. And then we also finally, we look at learning rates, which is looks at the amount learned per grade. So both the average math and ELA test scores, which I'll call opportunity, education opportunity, and test score trends, which I'll call changes in education opportunity. That's how we talk about it in the paper. And that's also how CETA talks about it when they're looking over these measures. The key thing here, though, is when we look at these average math and ELA test scores, we find statistically significant differences both nationwide and across regions that favor schools that were located in higher rated AB neighborhoods compared to those schools that were located in lower rated C neighborhoods as well as red line D neighborhoods. And there's a pretty distinct rank order to this finding where we see largest differences in average math and ELA test scores, i.e. education opportunity between A versus D schools, then the second largest between B versus D schools, and then the third largest between C versus D schools. So it's quite interesting that there's that clean of a rank order and um, that there's this type of variation we're picking up on for educational opportunity. In contrast, though, when we look at changes in average math and ELA test scores, i.e. changes in education opportunity, in addition to learning rates, we see virtually no differences by whole grade. And so to package this and put this succinctly, what it tells us is that while we see learning rates and changes in educational opportunity are on average the same across these A through D whole grades, overall educational opportunity is not. And so specifically, that is for those schools that were located in these historically red line D assigned neighborhoods, we are finding that at least on average, they have less educational opportunity than those located in A, B, and C neighborhoods. And so the key thing here too is, is this is just a snapshot not a time series. We're just looking at a snapshot using this pooled CETA data. But one of the takeaways here as well, even though it is just a snapshot, is that we see this equality exhibited in average learning rates and average educational opportunity, which stand alone might be a positive finding. However, when you pair this with the fact that you have inequality in average educational opportunity across the whole grades, we would expect given this status quo for the existing gaps that we see there to remain. And so that's something important um, and something that we want to highlight when we talk about these results. In 2020, we saw widespread movements for racial justice and social equity here in the U.S. And many of the conversations that grew out of those movements have continued and are now even in some instances influencing policy in 2021. Uh, given that backdrop, I'm curious what you think the implications of a study like this might be. Um, what do you think policymakers, school leaders, educators, and even families should take away from this work? 
Yeah, that's a great question and something that Dylan and I have been wrestling with as we've been working to make this research better and also just thinking about additional research questions that we're taking on. So far, we've been thinking about this in terms of two buckets. The first bucket is how are dollars flowing to schools and neighborhoods? And the second bucket is actually how are students being assigned to schools within neighborhoods? And for the first bucket about dollars, as Dylan highlighted earlier in this conversation, local funding is where we see the most variation across the A through D neighborhoods in our modern outcomes, whereas the federal and state dollars are tending to be distributed in a more equal pattern. And so there is a question about how local funding dollars might be leveraged to support D neighborhoods where we are likely to see like lower property values and therefore might not be able to actually like see the high capitalization of local dollars. So that's a kind of a question of like how to pool local dollars across different types of neighborhoods, which is certainly not an easy policy question and is tied into like many different perspectives about the role of, of local funding. But I think it is something that can be reflected on given the sort of persistent variation in housing values and like neighborhood quality and how that currently affects schools. And then in terms of the second bucket, uh, as I was alluding to earlier when talking about the diversity outcomes, it does seem that in some places there is a break in the linkage between the demographic characteristics of a neighborhood and the demographic characteristics of a school within the neighborhood. And so I think as is clear in how certain districts are approaching this issue, some districts are choosing to change the way assignment patterns are operating so that students are not tied to going to the school that's directly in their neighborhood. And we're also seeing these issues of choice more so solidified in how like charter schools are operating. So there is a consideration about if there is the goal of increasing the diversity in a school, if these different mechanisms of providing choice are the way to pursue that. But I personally think that's still downstream of issues of funding, assuming that the dollars are not directly following a student when they're moving across a district. And finally, are there opportunities here for future research, um, either for you two or others who are working in this area? Yeah, absolutely. I know for our team, we're really interested as we continue to dig into this work of seeing what's happening at a city level or what's happening more locally. So kind of alluding to what Chris is saying, I think in this case, there's lots of opportunities for us to deep dive into these specific cities and specific regions and figure out and identify these best-in-class areas. So figuring out what's working when those gaps are really small and figuring out what's not working when those gaps are really big, that's definitely a real opportunity and definitely something we're interested in getting at the why here. And that could help lead to some more pointed policy discussions and policy suggestions. Um, at this point, we really haven't gotten into that. I think also there's an opportunity which we're already working on right now is looking at instead of district level funding, 
is looking specifically at school level funding. And then, of course, there's always opportunity to take the work we're doing right now, which is more just looking at a relationship and an association and make it explicitly causal. We're already working on that and are excited to see what comes of it. Well, again, the paper that we've been discussing here today is just great work, and we want to encourage our listeners to go and read the full working paper. Again, it's titled The Lingering Legacy of Redlining on School Funding, Diversity, and Performance, and it is now available at edworkingpapers.com. Dylan Lukes and Christopher Cleveland, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us, and we look forward to sharing our future work with you. Yes, echoing Dylan, it was really great just to get to have this conversation. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to the series, you can find us at researchminutes.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest a future topic, you can follow us on Twitter at CPRI Hub. That's C-P-R-E Hub.